Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that even as the battle rages, we have hope. We have your promises. We have your peace. We have been, we have been given peace with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf that we celebrated last week so we could have peace from God in the midst of these storms and battles that we face on a daily basis. Lord, you never promised that this life would be easy. In fact, you promised the opposite. You promised that we would be persecuted for your name. You promised that we would be killed for your sake, for your, the cause of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and power and wisdom we need to face these battles in this world with your truth and with your love. We thank you for giving us your word. It gives us every food, every weapon, every piece of armor we need in this life. It gives us the standards that you call us to live to. It tells us about the Holy Spirit who fills us after we repent and take you as Savior and King, who empowers us to live in the way that you want us to live. And it reminds us that we are your children and that we will never be alone. Lord, we thank you for everything you give to us in your word. All of it. The entire word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a Reader's Digest article uh, from just a couple months ago entitled, Seven Immortal Animals That Basically Live Forever. I was intrigued. So I looked, at, I looked at this article. We've all heard about how long sea turtles live. Finding Nemo is famous for including that question. Apparently, sea turtles' organs don't seem to break down over time. And so the New York Times reports that they have the potential to live indefinitely. But then again, it's the New York Times reporting it. So I don't know how much stock we can actually put in the truth of that. Planarian worms, usually found in bodies of water, can regenerate aging or damaged tissue, sidestepping the aging process. If they're cut in half, both across and lengthwise, those halves grow into two new planarian worms. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Let's just hope the most annoying ones aren't the ones getting cut in half all the time. Similar to planarian worms, a certain type of jellyfish, commonly known as the immortal jellyfish, uh, whenever this organism gets injured or sick, it reverts its entire self back to a baby polyp stage over a three-day three period. It then grows back into adulthood from that polyp stage, going back and forth as many times as it needs to. Hopefully, whenever it goes back through its teenage stage of growth, it's not asking its parents for more movie theater money every single time. In all these examples, in basic theory, these animals could live indefinitely. That is, unless there were some other kind of predatory or environmental factors. Even though they can regenerate, this only goes so far. And their lives are still at risk of ending at some point due to any number of reasons. There is no assurance nor confirmation of immortality, even though the article title suggests otherwise. For human beings, though, there is a source of assurance 
and confirmation of immortality. And it has nothing to do with us, nor anything this world can offer. We'll see how humanity's immortality goes hand in hand with a brand new, perfect world. All that we can have to look forward to, especially in this life, how we can have it, and why that brings us speechless in worship before the throne of God. We took a bit of a break over the past couple of Holy Week Sundays from our Gospel of John series, and more specifically from John's account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, what we're talking about today is directly related to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which we celebrated last Sunday. But as we all know, the resurrection is only the beginning. It's not Easter Sunday was last week and now everything is over. Easter Sunday is just the beginning of everything, and that's what goes hand in hand with what we're talking about today. Where we last left this account a few weeks ago, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, the brother of the famous Mary and Martha, had gotten sick and died. Martha had dispatched some messengers to go find Jesus over across the Jordan River, where John the Baptist had ministered before his arrest and execution. By the time the messengers found Jesus, however, Lazarus was already dead. Jesus waited where he was for two more days, not because he was uncompassionate or because he was waiting until Lazarus had died, but because he wanted everyone to see that Lazarus had been dead for days. This would remove all doubt that when Jesus would raise him back to dead or back to life from the dead he had done the impossible when we discussed this account a few weeks ago i pointed out the theme that ran through all of these verses the theme of god's sovereignty the last time jesus had been in the vicinity of jerusalem there was a mob ready to stone him to death right then and there But because it wasn't God's timing, nor God's plan for Jesus to die that way, Jesus miraculously escaped. And even just a short time period after that, Jesus was unafraid of returning to that area. Even though his disciples were convinced they would all be met with death as soon as they got anywhere close. Jesus knew the sovereignty of God's plan, and when the circumstances finally met up with what he knew the Father's plan was for his death, and when it was God's timing for it, then it would happen. But it wouldn't happen yet. We talked about how it's the same for us as God's children. That we have no fear of death, nor the circumstances surrounding that. For when it's God's plan, and when it's God's timing, That's when it'll happen. And we can trust him with all of it. So what does that mean? It means, in essence, we're invincible until it's God's timing for him to take us home. And we have the freedom from the fear of death in order to do the work in boldness that he's called us to do. Share the good news of salvation found only in Jesus and to unabashedly stand firm for the truth of God's word in love. 
Not only that, but Martha had that simple and full trust in God's sovereignty. She had her wishes. She had her requests, which she humbly presented to Jesus in verse 21. But ultimately, she left whatever Jesus was going to do up to him and up to God the Father's plan. And a few weeks ago, we also talked about having a similar faith to that. That we present our desires and our requests to God, but we ultimately trust Him and His plan, and that He knows what's best for us, our spiritual growth, and our transformation process into more and more like Jesus. We last left Jesus, His disciples, and Martha on the outskirts of Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in verse 23. There Jesus told Martha that her brother would rise again. We see Martha's understanding of Jesus' statement where we'll be picking up again in verse 24 this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be picking back up in verse 24. Or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John eleven twenty four. 24, we read, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago, we see that Martha knew and understood the Old Testament prophecies concerning the resurrection of God's people in the end times. The most famous verse in the Old Testament prophecies, and therefore for the Jewish people, is Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now to understand what Martha is thinking here, we need to see what this verse is in direct connection to. The entire chapter of Daniel 12 is apocalyptic in nature. That is, all of it deals with end times prophecy. We can see the description of the second half of the seven-year Great Tribulational period. And this entire chapter deals with how that second three and a half years of the Tribulation will affect the Jewish people specifically, which is what directly impacts Martha's understanding here. All of what will follow through to the end is based on biblical and theologically sound scholarship. The very last verse of that chapter tells Daniel, But as for you, go your way to the end, his physical end. Then you will rest and rise for your allotted portion at the end of the age. God revealed to Daniel a prophet who lived a little over 500 years before Jesus, that he didn't need to be worried about fully understanding all of the prophecy given to him himself and to go on his way to his earthly death in peace. The phrase, then you will rest, is a euphemism for death. And then Daniel is told he will rise from that death at the end of the age. What we see here is that there was at the very least a rudimentary knowledge that at the end of the age, at the end of the world, 
both those who loved God and trusted in his promises, namely those that pertain to the coming Messiah, and those who rejected God and lived wickedly would be resurrected. Everybody, both types of people would be resurrected. Those who remained faithful to God would be given everlasting life, and those who didn't would be given everlasting contempt and punishment. We're going to see how we in this current church age that we live in now can understand this in a little bit more detail in a few minutes. But we can see Martha's basic understanding of this theological concept for the Jewish people before Jesus died and rose again. And we see exactly that in Martha's response in verse 24 to Jesus saying that Lazarus would rise again. But Jesus here expanded all that that resurrection would mean and include. And then what he does is he connects it all to himself. Verses 25 through 26, some of the most powerful words in all of God's word. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's right up there with John 3.16. The gospel in a nutshell. Do you believe this? All of the authority of life and all of the authority of resurrection had been given to Jesus by the Father. John already started out his gospel by saying anything that lives, anything that exists, was created by Jesus. God the Father, but through Jesus. So Jesus is the author of life. Therefore, it only makes sense that he's the author of resurrection as well. Jesus had already explained that earlier in this gospel. He already told the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Jesus has already told the Pharisees this too in reference to his own death and life. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Because Jesus has the authority to lay down his own life on his own terms to pay for humanity's sin, and he has the authority to take his own life up again in his own resurrection, he has the authority to give eternal life to those who believe in him. And Jesus has already stated that that authority extends to the resurrection of all humanity. Some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. He already said this too. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And again, this isn't saying that it's your works that get you into heaven or earn you hell. But it's what is seen from your heart. What is being seen in action from your heart. Have you given your heart to Jesus in repentance or have you rejected him? 
Jesus is about to give a physical and literal illustration of verse 28. That a dead man in a tomb will hear the voice of Jesus and come out of the grave. That's the point of Jesus raising Lazarus from physical death. That's the entire point of it. Both as a foreshadowing of Jesus' authority over his own resurrection from imminent death and as an illustration of his authority over resurrecting both those who are made righteous through their trust in him for salvation unto eternal life and those who didn't into eternal judgment. All of this is wrapped up in verses 25 through 26 of this morning's passage. Since Jesus has the authority over his own death and life, and he has the authority to raise everyone else from death, and it's through his death and resurrection that anyone can be given eternal life, he is, Jesus is, the very definition of resurrection and life. This he will publicly show in a very real way before everyone's eyes when a man who had been dead for four days simply walks out of the tomb unscathed like nothing even happened to him. Not only is Jesus the definition of resurrection and eternal life, but it's only through his death and resurrection that we are given new spiritual life in the here and now. It's only through our putting the trust for our eternal life into Jesus taking our place and paying for our sin on our behalf and our repentance of that sin that we receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit, given both by God the Father and the resurrected Son of God, is who starts transforming us from day one. He starts freeing us from the power of sin and addiction in our lives. He frees us from fear, depression, and anxiety. He reminds us of who we are as God's children. He convicts and points out where there is still residual sin in our lives that we need to repent of and get right with God. And he changes the entire way we view the world all around us, trusting in God's perfect plan for us. In short, our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection starts giving us new life and new resurrection power immediately with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What this also gives us is a promise that is simply breathtaking. This is what I mean. This is where we come back to being able to understand today in the period of theological world history known as the church age. That Martha, at this point of Jesus meeting her outside of Bethany, and every other Old Testament person who loved God and trusted in his messianic promises of deliverance, may or may not have fully understood, but we have the promise of. Let's go back to Daniel 12 too. In order to understand the timing of this, we need to reference the verse immediately preceding it. In Daniel 12:1, we read this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred until uh, uh, 
such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. What in the world is going on there? This time of distress is what Jesus references in Matthew 24, 15 through 28, but specifically Matthew 24, 21, when he says, For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. In context, this is the direct reference to what will happen to the Jewish people, and specifically during the second half of the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist will break the peace treaty he had made with Israel at the very beginning of the tribulation and set himself up as God in the Jewish temple. After that, as Daniel 11 describes, he will make it his mission to destroy everyone who doesn't agree with him. This will make the Jewish people a prime target for his fury, and that's why Jesus uses such traumatic language in Matthew 24 to describe what his fellow Jewish people will have to endure. The archangel Michael, designated as Israel's guardian angel, will come to their aid, but it will still be a time of unprecedented anguish and attack by the Antichrist towards the Jewish people. In fact, the prophet Zechariah wrote that the Antichrist will attack Jerusalem and be partially successful at destroying its inhabitants. This is towards the end of the seven-year tribulation. It will be a time of great and overwhelming death for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. But just when the Antichrist will think he has accomplished victory, something happens. Jesus bursts out of heaven and fully returns to earth. Jesus references this full return in connection with the end of the tribulation in Matthew 24, 29 through 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man come coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This same event is described in the book of Revelation as the battle of Armageddon. As Daniel 12:1 says, those who are still living at that point, having already put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, will be rescued by him when he annihilates the antichrist's armies tosses the Antichrist and his false prophet into the lake of fire and imprisons Satan for a thousand years. It's at this same time after the tribulation and after Jesus fully returns at Armageddon that the resurrection that Daniel wrote about and Martha understood takes place. Why this is, is because what we saw in Daniel 12, 1 through, 2, 1 through 2, it's in direct connection to the end of the tribulation and the Christ's deliverance of the surviving Jewish people from the Antichrist at Armageddon. This resurrection at the end of the tribulation and at Armageddon includes all of those who lived on earth from the time of creation, loved God, 
trusted in his messianic promises, and died before the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, commonly known as the Old Testament saints. You might have heard that term before. It includes anybody who ever lived from the time of creation until the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, the beginning of the church, uh, who loved God and put their faith in his messianic promises. It includes all of them. They're known as the Old Testament saints. Job, who, we, as we referenced last week, lived during the time of the patriarchs, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wrote this. And then, oh, I don't have it written there. Okay. This is what Job writes. Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, at the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. That plainly speaks about resurrection when God is on earth. Again, we see that Job, along with every other faithful person who died before the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was permanently given, will be resurrected when the Redeemer, Jesus, who is God, takes his stand on the earth at his second coming in Armageddon, at the end of the tribulation. Their souls have been with God all these thousands of years to be reunited with their bodies at that point. At this same point in history, all those who put their faith in Jesus during the tribulation years and were killed for it will also be resurrected. This resurrection is part of what is called in Scripture as the first resurrection. And it also results in the same eternal life that we've seen Jesus referencing in John so far. If there's a first resurrection, however, and it's called that, there's a reason why it's called a first resurrection, what does there also need to be? A second resurrection. And just as Jesus has the authority over the first resurrection, he also has the authority over this second resurrection, as we've already read. And that is this. After Jesus rescues God's people in Jerusalem at Armageddon, and like I said, chucks the Antichrist and his false prophet into the lake of fire for eternity, and chains up Satan and his demons for a thousand years, the Messiah will set up his literal messianic kingdom on earth, of which all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's kingdom of peace, prosperity, and abundance, that the people waving palm branches at Jesus' triumphal entry sort of understood, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, all those Old Testament messianic kingdom prophecies are describing during that messianic kingdom. After that 1,000-year-long or millennial kingdom comes to its close, Satan will be released one last time where he will deceive myriads of those born during that millennial kingdom to attack Jerusalem and King Jesus one last time. Those will be decimated by fire from heaven, and Satan and his demons will be tossed into the lake of fire for eternity. At that point, the second resurrection that Jesus references in John 5 and what is referenced in Daniel 12, which Martha was referencing in our passage this morning, will take place. Revelation 20 describes that all those from the time of creation up through the end of the millennial kingdom who rejected God, lived 
wicked lives and then rejected Jesus later will be resurrected, reunited with their souls that have been tormented in Hades all this time, judged for their evil, and tossed right into the same lake of fire that Satan and the Antichrist were tossed into to be tormented day and night for all of eternity. These are not my words. These are words straight out of God's word. There are others who are also part of the first resurrection unto eternal life, of which Jesus is the authority, as we've referenced throughout this morning. We talked about the first resurrection of all those who put their faith in God and his Messiah from creation until the day of Pentecost in the early 30s A.D. We talked about the second resurrection of all those who rejected God and his Messiah throughout all time, whose souls are temporarily in tortuous Hades for this time period. We talked about the first resurrection, also including those who put their faith in Jesus during the tribulational period before the millennial kingdom. But which part of theological history and resurrection have we not referenced yet today? Those who put their faith in Jesus from the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago all the way up to what immediately precedes the tribulational period which hasn't happened yet. So who does that include? That includes us. We are also part of the first resurrection, but as followers of Jesus in this age, known as the church age, we get to experience something glorious. Not only do we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which the Old Testament, Old Testament believers did not get to permanently experience, but we get to look forward to another global event. When the Apostle Paul references this event in world history, he only refers to those who are in Christ. Another reference to the universal church or all those who put their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection after it happened. When Paul had founded the church in Thessalonica, he had taught them, about end times events, including the tribulation and the first resurrection. Then he had to leave, after which some in the Thessalonian church died. The church had had a misunderstanding, and were heartbroken because of this, that none of them would die before the first resurrection, and therefore they had missed the boat. And all of them were doomed to go through the time of unprecedented time of, of persecution that Jesus had described in Matthew 24, known as the tribulation. Wanting to calm their fears as part of the first recorded letter we have from the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, sought to give the description of the first part of the first resurrection clearly giving evidence that this first part of the first resurrection would take place before any part of the tribulation would take place. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, it's no wonder then that Paul includes in his opening to the Thessalonian church and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
Tribulation is described in the Old Testament as God pouring out his wrath upon the earth for all the thousands of years of evil that has taken place on it. How is that rescuing or first part of the first resurrection going to take place? Well, Paul gets into that a few chapters later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. That at a point in time, probably very soon here, Jesus will partially return from where he's at in heaven now to the air and clouds above the earth, bringing back all the souls of those who had died and made up his church since its inception on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, all the way up to that point. These Paul refers to as being in Christ. He will resurrect their bodies reunite them with their souls, and glorify those bodies, making them free from sin, decay, sickness, and death. Anyone who's still alive on earth at that point, who is also a part of Jesus' universal church, will also be called up and given glorified bodies. This is called the rapture. And Paul says that from that moment on, we will be with Jesus for all of eternity. From that moment on. What does that include? That includes that we'll be with Jesus in heaven while everything during the tribulation rages on earth. That we'll return with him at his back when he explodes out of heaven on a brilliant white horse to destroy the Antichrist's armies at Armageddon will reign with him in various positions in his millennial kingdom on earth, and will live in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity, all while still in these glorified, perfected bodies he gave us when he first raptured us. Amen? Amen. That is the breathtaking, glorious experience we look forward to in resurrected and glorified bodies of which Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits or the prototype of our resurrection bodies. Our salvation, our new spiritual life now, and our future physical resurrection are all wrapped up in and based only on Jesus' resurrection from death and his authority over all of it. So when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, he truly meant it in every possible way. He also asks Martha, do you believe this? Martha responds with this simple yet profound statement, verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Isn't that just beautiful? No strings attached. She just lays her faith down at his feet. Martha says, yes, I believe you are the prophesied messianic king, God, and the coming end times rescuer that Daniel talks about. And as noted by one biblical scholar, taken with everything Jesus just said to her, she says, I believe you are my resurrection, my life, and my Lord. 
She got it. She got it. Martha put all of her full and complete trust in Jesus for all of who he is. The Messiah, God himself, the deliverer from sin, and therefore the embodiment of everything resurrection and eternal life means. Because of that, we know she will be part of the first resurrection and also reign with Jesus in his millennial kingdom on earth. Same question, though, needs to be posed to each and every one of us. Do you believe this? Which resurrection will you be a part of? Because every single person who has ever lived will be a part of a resurrection. You will live for all of eternity. It just depends where you will live for all of eternity. Which resurrection will you be a part of? Will you be a part of the second resurrection where you just continue living this life and rejection of Jesus' salvation from your sin, continuing to live in your sins, and then simply dying in your sins, sealed only to be resurrected at the, day of the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, to be judged for all of your sin, and thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity, a place that Jesus describes as a place of physical and emotional torment. Is that the resurrection you're going to be a part of? Or are you going to be a part of the first resurrection of rapture to enjoy all of heaven's blessings and Jesus' very presence for all of eternity? Which resurrection are you going to be a part of? To be a part of the first resurrection, see, we're all headed towards the second resurrection until something changes. To be a part of the first resurrection, you must first do what Martha did and come to Jesus in prayer, repenting of your sin, recognizing and accepting that Jesus died and rose again to save you from that sin and making him Lord. Martha says, yes, Lord. She made him Lord over the rest of her life. We need to make him Lord or King over the rest of our lives as well. Your new life and spiritual resurrection begin on the day you do that. The Holy Spirit will breathe that new life into you and transform you, making you more and more like Jesus every day and freeing you from the sin and fear that once held you in bondage. And someday... Like I keep saying, it's looking like it's going to be pretty soon. With each passing day, Jesus will come back for you, giving you that full resurrection and eternal life with him. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such powerful, simple poignant, straight-to-the-fact words in the Gospel of John, that you are the very definition of the resurrection and the life. There are two resurrections, the first resurrection unto eternal life and the second resurrection unto eternal condemnation. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not taken that time 
take, had that point in their life where they've come to you in prayer, repented of their sins, said, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin separates me from you. I know that Jesus took my place on the cross to pay for my sin. Therefore, I repent of it. I know he rose again from the dead to prove that he is the resurrection, that he is God, and that he is the one who can give me this eternal life. I make him the Lord, the king over my life for the rest of my days. I pray that if there's anybody who has never taken that time to come to you in prayer and make that commitment in repentance before you, that they would do so right now. Because, Lord, we know, we know, we have no clue how much time we have left on this earth, and then it's too late. We have no clue if we walk out from the doors today and we get hit by a car. We have no clue. I pray that if there's anybody here today who has not yet done that, that they would do so right now. Because, Lord, there is no more important decision to make. They feel that churning of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, that it's you calling out to them. Give them the power to answer that call right now. And Lord, that if we've made that decision, if we've made that commitment, if we've answered that call, that churning of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we've come to you in repentance and made Jesus the Savior of our sin and King over the rest of our lives. I pray that we would live the rest of this life in the power of the Holy Spirit, doing the work you've called us to do in boldness, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone we meet, looking forward to the day when you come back for us and give us those glorified bodies. That we, are, that, that we have no fear when it comes to death, because even when we die, as Jesus says, we will still live. That you will resurrect us, and we will get to be with you for all of eternity. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.